Why don't you turn in your Bibles? We're going to go back to Matthew chapter 7. I think um, this is, we're nearing the end actually of what has been a series through Jesus' sermon. It's all one sermon, three chapters of Matthew's gospel. And um, we find ourselves, and I think it's probably the third to last message in the series. So um, page 1431. Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to read from verse 15. We'll read that paragraph to verse 20. He says this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. Probably the first thing that you notice about this passage and reading it is that it has quite a negative tone. And certainly... When your job is to be a preacher, as mine is, and to pastor a church, um, you don't tend to choose to speak on passages like this for obvious reasons. Um, it, it can kind of feed into the whole image of the church as being quite a negative place where there's judgment and, and exclusion and those kinds of things. I want to tell you why I think we have to deal with this, though. And it comes down to me to a couple of reasons. One of them it's because of this. If, you, if I were to ask you, what is the most powerful thing in the world? Um, excluding God. Let's just leave him out of the picture for just one second. You'll never hear a pastor say that ever again. <laughs> um, I think you probably agree with me that it's not governments and it's not the ways that they control and govern people through power and, and guns and force and bombs and all these kinds of things that even more powerful and potent than any of those are the ideas that are in circulation in the world. Ideas and ideologies and uh, the way that they spread. In fact, governments are frightened of nothing more than an idea. That's why when governments are, are paranoid about sustaining control, it's ideas that have to be shut down. This is why you know, like artists and Christians in China are regularly put into jail in order to try and silence them, in order to try and kill an idea. And so... So it is that um, I think that when, we, when we're coming to a subject of teaching and ideas, it's not very trendy these days to think in this way, but they are, we're talking about something which we have to be discerning about because truth and falsehood, truth and lies are the most powerful thing in the world at large. There was a, a great little quote I remembered from um, the film Inception, that deeply confusing film, in which Cobb, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is talking to Saito, who's played by Ken Watanabe, and he says this. He says, what's the most resilient parasite? A bacteria, a virus, an intestinal worm, an idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold in the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that's fully formed, fully understood, that sticks right in there somewhere. The New Testament talks about ideas as being 
either something positive, it uses positive descriptions, and it also uses descriptions like gangrene. So I don't know if you've ever known anything about gangrene, but basically if you get a bacterial infection in part of your body that turns to gangrene, um, it means that your flesh starts to die. And there's no way of killing it through antibiotics um, when it gets bad enough. You have to start chopping off parts of your body. Probably wouldn't do it yourself. You might ask someone else to do it for you. But that's basically the only way of dealing with something which is really, really uh, life-threatening and dangerous. So that's the one thing. Ideas are very powerful things. And the church ought to be known as a people who recognize that at least. But also just speaking personally, my job in terms of what the New Testament says is to be a shepherd. The, the New Testament talks about the church as being like, like, a, like a flock of sheep. And that a pastor, the word just means shepherd. And you've got to think about what a shepherd did in the ancient world. These guys, um, they didn't drive Land Rovers and wear sort of barber jackets and, and, um, you know, and carry like their stick just for, just for show. These guys would sleep out in the fields with the sheep and that their life was very much in danger from time to time. If a wolf came and wanted to decimate or scatter or attack any part of the flock, a shepherd was there to put his life in between him and the sheep because the sheep were his livelihood. His family would only survive if the sheep survive. And uh, obviously, if you have a hireling, someone who's just sort of paid a daily wage to look after your sheep, there's a point at which a hireling confronts a wolf, looks him eye to eye, and says, no thanks, and runs away. Now, this is how I think a lot of Christians and pastors have treated ideas. They've become afraid to court any kind of disagreement with people. And so they've just basically said, okay, good luck and run away. Whereas what it means to be a shepherd in the Bible is to be someone who fights for truth. And it's done out of a heart of love, a heart of compassion, because you know that ideas are the most powerful thing that affects people. So when Paul's leaving one of his churches that he founded, church in Ephesus, he starts talking to the guys he's entrusting it to, the elders of the church, and he says to them, pay, pay careful attention to the flock and to yourselves, because he says that I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's saying that people will come in with all kinds of ideas that scatter and decimate the church. And when you look at the church in the UK at large, you're looking at a church, uh, 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 this having happened. That at some point, the shepherds packed up and left, and the people were decimated. So we need to think about, well, what are we talking about here today? And the answer is, it's all about this idea of false prophets. I know this is weird language, especially if you're not used to coming to church. We don't really talk about prophets, do we? Never mind false prophets. But let me just try and sort of demystify this for you in a couple of seconds. When we're talking about a prophet, we're really just talking about someone who's a messenger. Somebody who has a message that gives you some kind of sense of significance and understanding and meaning in life. Somebody who's trying to interpret things for you that places you within the bigger picture of what's going on in life. So when you ask, well, who are the prophets around today? We could take a narrow perspective and just think, it's the guys in the pulpits in churches and there's thousands of them across this country this morning doing exactly what I'm doing. But I think we have to take a much broader view than that and understand that a prophet speaks on behalf of all kinds of gods and all kinds of ideas. And when we take a much broader view, we see there's philosophers, 
It usually starts up at the academy, that level, ideas, big ideas about the world. They seep down into the arts, filmmakers, storytellers, songwriters, culture makers, all kinds of people, journalists, all these people, even right down to just your friend who you hang out with, who loves to spout his opinions about this, that, and the other. I think to some extent, we're all prophets. We're all seeking to sort of persuade others of what we believe. Now, when we take that massively broad view, you've got to realize just how potently susceptible we are to different perspectives and interpretations about life. I saw a guy I respect, I I read a quote by a great thinker the other day who said this. He said, when the history books on homosexuality are written, Will and Grace, you remember the sitcom, Will and Grace will be seen as a greater influence than any argument. I think that's massively insightful because what he's saying is that now we're seeing put into legislation all kinds of changes in society that began really through popular drama or that was spread abroad through a, a, a sitcom. And so I only say that to illustrate the point, friends, that we are exposed to all kinds of ideas all of the time and that when Jesus talks about false prophets, I don't think he's taking a particularly narrow view. I think he's saying, you know, People in church, everything that you're bombarded with all day long, these are the kinds of things we have to take care about. So I want to basically ask you three questions today. I want to ask you firstly, what do you believe? Then who do you believe? And finally, do you believe Jesus? What do you believe? Who do you believe? And do you believe Jesus? Let me begin with what do you believe? My throat's a bit sore, so I'm just going to talk a little bit more gently and quietly than usual. What you believe matters because ideas have. I start shouting at you. (laughs) Ideas have consequences. I can't help it. I'm so passionate. (laughs) Ideas have consequences. It's true on the on the grand scale, isn't it? You know, we're we're watching a world that is changing right now because we are seeing the conflict of ideologies. I don't know if any of you picked up on that uh, video that was going around from Andrew Neil, who hosts the program This Week, which assesses politics and stuff. And he said, I'll just summarize it for you, but he said about the Paris attacks, he said, it's a week in which a bunch of losers, jihadists, slaughtered 132 innocents in Paris to prove the future belongs to them, rather than a civilization like France. And then he lists all the great things about France. He talks about Descartes and Boulet and Monet and Sartre and Rousseau and liberty, egality, fraternity and creme brulee. And then he says, versus what? Beheadings, crucifixions, amputations, slavery. He goes on and says, the outcome's pretty clear to everybody but you. Whatever atrocities you're currently capable of committing, you will lose. In a thousand years' time, Paris, the glorious city of lights, will be shining bright, as will every other city like it, while you will be as dust, along with the ragbag of fascist Nazis and Stalinists that have previously dared to challenge democracy, capital D, and failed. Now, I just wanted to read that to you, because basically what illustrates what we're talking about here. The powers that are at work in the world around you are always a battle of ideas, And this also is true, that ideas bear fruit. They have consequences. So what he's talking about here are competing ideologies and ideas about society that on the one hand result in a country like France, with everything we love about France, and the other hand result in all the ugliness that we're seeing in the Middle East. 
Ideas have consequences. So what you believe matters. And it's not just true at the level out there. It's true also at a much deeper, more personal level about you as an individual. You are the sum of your ideas. You are living out a life that is basically putting your ideas on display to the world around you. So here's how it's put by one preacher. He wrote, That which a man is ultimately in the depths is always going to reveal and manifest itself. And it does so in belief and life. The two things are indissolubly linked together. As a man thinks, so eventually he is. As a man thinks, so he does. In other words, we inevitably proclaim what we are and what we believe. It doesn't matter how careful we are, it is bound to come out. Nature must express itself. Ideas have consequences. What you believe matters. You are the product of your beliefs. And so I'm pressing you to think about this. That how you answer the biggest questions in life is all important. Questions like, what are you? Why are you here? Where did you come from and where are you going? We all have a different narrative that we fill in with those big questions that places us within a story. When you ask me, well, what's the predominant na- narrative that's, that's, that's got purchase in the world at large, in the Western world today, it's the idea that we arrived here by accident and by chance. And friends, that's a narrative that has deep, profound, world-changing effects. If we came here by chance, if chance is the father of all things, think about how it then affects culture. When I look around at the Western world, one of the things that is most blatantly obvious about us is that we've we bought into consumerism like never before, apart from perhaps in the Roman era. Why? Why are people so obsessed with possessions? Isn't it because when you strip away any idea of God and spirituality from the universe, and we are just atoms, just an accident, then presumably all that matters is possession and the interaction of you with other material objects. That might seem a bit vague, but let's pin it down to one example. Think about sex. In the Christian perspective, sex is not just a physical act, it's a spiritual act. So we don't have a low view of sex, we don't have a a view of it being a dirty thing. We have an incredibly high view of sex. We say it's probably one of the most powerful physical things you can ever do. Because it actually binds lives together. The Bible talks about becoming one flesh. So we say don't mess with it, it's like messing with fire if it's not within the right context. But if you strip away all of the significance and and even maybe the transcendence of, of what sex is and what it can do, what are you left with? You're left with just a physical act. And, and so what I'm seeing in the world at large in terms of the attitude towards sex is just basically consumerism and materialism on steroids. That life is no more than your, your physical interactions, so why not just enjoy them while, while you can. You think about morality as well. 
If we take God out of the picture, a God who's bigger than us, who can tell us what to do, basically, and if we are nothing but the random collision of atoms, if, if our God is chance, then really there's nothing outside of you to bind you to any standard other than what you choose to buy into. There's no good, there's no evil, there's just personal preference. The bottom line then is that in a world where the narrative, the great storyline is one of us being here by accident, I think there's no meaning, I think there's no purpose, I think there's no significance, and ultimately your life is just is. That's all you can say about it, you're just here. Even love is emptied of anything particularly meaningful or significant because love can be explained. It's just the random collision of, of you know, chemical reactions in your brain. Well, that's just so romantic, isn't it? If you tell your wife, wow, there's some really amazing chemical reactions going off in my brain right now when I look at you. <laughs> it's nothing, just, just physical. <laughs> and so it seems to me that we're left in a situation where in the absence, in a vacuum for anything beyond us, anything bigger than us, We're scrambling around for meaning. And that's why I think the postmodern Western world is a world in which you see people grabbing meaning wherever they can, in whatever form they can, even if it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Because we can't believe the big storyline is it. We have to have meaning. It's built in. It's hardwired into us. I think this is put so well in a poem by a Christian called Steve Turner. The poem's called Creed. So obviously, if you grew up in traditional church, you may have said a creed every Sunday. We believe in God the Father, and dot, 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 dot. Well, this is meant to be a creed that captures the spirit of the age for the postmodern man. And it goes like this. I think we're going to have it up on the screen. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay, as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated. You can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after after death comes the nothing. Because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson, what's selected is average, what's average is normal, what's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. Americans should beat their guns into tractors and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that's right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds. And so he wrote a postscript. If chance, 
You can almost capitalize that as the new God. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, whites go looting, bomb blast school, it is but the sound of man worshipping his maker. When we have replaced God, the God who revealed himself in the Bible, with this new God we call chance, the creator of all things, we're left in a state of confusion. We can't explain the world around us. We scramble to try and find meaning wherever we find it. The trouble is that because we're hardwired to become worshippers, we end up worshipping just about anything to fill the gap that was meant to be your worship of the living, holy God. Last week I read to you a little bit from David Foster Wallace, that great writer, and his Kenyan commencement speech. It was very famous. I don't know what kind of faith, if any, he had, but he touched on something so potent and real towards the end of that speech when he said this. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, he says, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. Worship power and you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. Worship your intellect Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Friends, when we look around us and try and account for life as we see it and the situation that people are in, we need to start asking not only what is true, but also what is livable. The Bible tells you a completely different story to what I've been seeking to describe. It tells you of a God who loves you, who created you. The very fact that he created you means that you're not just animal, but that you have an invested dignity. The Bible says you're created in the image of God. It says that God loved you and that the measure of his love was in the fact that he was willing to send Jesus, his son, to the cross to die for your sins. If ever you feel that you're alone in this world, if ever you feel that you're not loved by anyone, the cross is the proof that God loves you. The Bible tells you that that was an act that was designed to redeem you from your sin because you're a guilty person. Christians don't believe in a kind of therapeutic message of self-esteem. It seems to me that in the world where people are so fraught with insecurities and brokenness, you know, that depression is so prevalent and mental um, sicknesses are so widespread, one of the answers that people look to is the idea that we just need to build up one another's self-esteem. But I don't think any amount of affirmation from yourself to yourself, or maybe even from another person, is ever enough. 
And the Bible doesn't start there. It starts with the complete opposite. It says you're a deeply flawed person, but that you were made for more. It says that there's a brokenness in you that God wants to fix, that there's a guilt in you that he wants to cleanse. It's a completely different storyline, but friends, it's not one that leads from randomness to more randomness to oblivion. It's one that takes us from God and his intentions to hope. What is it that you believe? More briefly, who do you believe? Who do you believe? Credibility is a very precious thing in life. There are people in this room who have credibility in all kinds of fields in which I have none. If I have a legal question, and we occasionally do because we are now a legal entity as a church, I like to ask Danny my questions because he knows a heck of a lot more about the law than I do from watching The Good Wife and Suits, which are based in America anyway. Whatever your questions are, there's people in this room and people out there who have credibility. We've got doctors in this room. We don't need to self-diagnose. But the problem is that when it comes to matters of the deepest, the deepest truths in life, the, the kind of things that affect your entire outlook on life, questions about God and spirituality and so on. The trouble is knowing where to go, who has the credibility to answer your questions. And it seems to me that a lot of people have a spiritual hunger, but they don't know who to ask. They don't know who has the answers. They don't know where the credibility lies. Now, when Jesus is trying to help us here, he says, You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The entire tenor of what he's saying is not only that ideas have consequences, but that you can trace the truth of the ideas by looking at the fruit, the consequences. And so for Christ, if you want to discover where truth is, if you want to look at the deep questions, the question of who comes before what? That we need to be looking at who we can listen to before we decide whether what they're speaking is true or not. Think of it like this. If you had a lump in your body, the kind of lump that is life-threatening and dangerous, and you had the option of choosing a doctor to do the surgery, are you going to go around and look for the best-looking, richest, most eloquent, confident doctor that you can find in the private health service in the country I don't think so I think you're going to go around looking for people whose credentials stack up you ask questions like well, where, where were you trained and show me your statistics what's your success rate in, in doing this kind of surgery because the who has to come before the what you want to know who you can trust now this is very important because of the nature of faith and how faith works a lot of people think faith is this kind of leap into the dark because a lot of people have painted it as that. It's a complete misunderstanding, a myth about what faith is. Faith is very simply trusting a person. You, you use faith all the time. You know, if you're going to go out after this and go to Sainsbury's and grab a, a meal, a sandwich or whatever, you're using faith, you're trusting that it's not in the best interest of that supermarket to put cyanide in all their sandwiches. So you exercise faith constantly, day after day, moment after moment, in other people. 
Now, when it comes to spiritual issues, faith is exactly the same. It's not a leap into the dark and into the unknown. It's putting your trust in a person. And therefore, the question is always, well, who do I put my trust in? And how can I tell who's going to tell me the truth? And Jesus says very simply, look at the fruit. Let me break that down a little bit more for you. I think that we can look at the fruit in terms of character, in terms of work or output, in terms of influence. It seems strange to me, just thinking about character first of all, that we listen to all kinds of people about whom we know nothing. You read opinion pieces on how to live successful lives or or assessing situations in the world at large and you don't know anything about the writer of that opinion piece or how successfully they're living their own life, whether they're a loving person, a kind person, a generous person, a just person. We watch films which are constantly communicating the message from the creators and yet we know next to nothing about the people creating it. It's amazing, isn't it, that we always interact, we trade at the level of ideas and we're we're ready to discount private lives. Jesus doesn't think that way. He says you always need to look at the life first of all because that's where you discover whether their beliefs work whether there's a consistency in their beliefs. Look at their character. Then he says, also, the fruit is going to be something about what they do with their lives, the output, their work. What does it produce? What kind of energy does it, does it drive in the person? And then also the influence. When their ideas begin to take root in society, what kind of society does it produce? Or what kind of community does it produce? Now, friends, this leads me on to my last question. I want to ask you, do you believe Jesus? And I'm speaking... To Christians here who've struggled with doubt, and those of you who would not call yourself a Christian but are interested in assessing the claims of Christ. Jesus wouldn't say this kind of stuff unless he was willing to be subjected to the exact same tests. So when he says that every healthy tree bears good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit, he's inviting you to look at his life. What kind of a tree is he and what kind of fruit has he produced? And you can break it down exactly the same way. Think about his character. When I read the Gospels, which I've read repeatedly over the years, read them many, many times, I can never fail to be captivated by Jesus. I don't think there's anyone like him in history. You could say, well, presumably those documents aren't reliable. They're just filters through which people wrote these sort of, these hagiographical um, praise documents of a man who, who got twisted by tradition. Actually, that's not at all true. They were written by men who knew him. Who spent a great deal of time with him. They traveled everywhere. They ate together. They used to sleep in the same living quarters. They walk on the road together for, for the three years that they were friends. You can spend one week with me and I will disappoint you very quickly. You would not be writing these kinds of things about me. But for example, John, Jesus' closest friend it seems, he writes to one of the churches that he had influence with and he says that what he's heard and seen with his eyes and looked upon and has touched with his hands, that's what he was preaching to them. He's saying, I spent all this time with Jesus and I didn't get less convinced, I got more convinced. The character of Christ 
is totally captivating. You want to know the fruit of his life? You just look at him. Look at his compassion. Look at his mercy. Look at his kindness. Look at his love. Look at the work he did. The miracles he did. The interactions with people. You find a man who not only passes the test of credibility, but he's matchless. And ultimately, of course, he gave his life on the cross and he did it as an act of self-sacrifice on your behalf, for your sake. Does Jesus pass these tests? He does so above and beyond. There is nobody like him. And if you still have doubt, can I ask you, have you ever really looked? Have you ever really read the Gospels? Have you ever read them with a mind that's open? Have you been able to overturn what they say, contradict it or explain it away? I doubt it, because it seems to me that most people reject Jesus without ever really considering him. Think about his influence also. Surely the test of an idea is what it does in society. Friends, I know that the church is not a perfect thing, but look at what Christ's teaching has done in the world at large. Look at how it it spawned scientific inquiry. Look at how it spawned the, the birth of hospitals and free healthcare eventually. Look at how it spawned education, especially education for the poor. You just need to read the history books. All of this is not because Christians are great people. It's because they worship a great savior. And because they seek to walk in his steps and follow him, the credibility of what Jesus teaches is borne out in the fruit. It is a healthy tree that bears healthy fruit. And you might come back at me, and rightly so, I wouldn't, I wouldn't at all feel offended. And you say, well, what about all the mistakes that Christians have made and that churches have made over the running centuries? What about their failures? And I would, you know, it might sound a little bit like special pleading, but I might come back at you and say something like this. That usually, it's, not, it's because they failed to pay attention to passages like this one. That at some point, the tree got corrupted. Not by Christ, but by someone or something else. You can always trace the sickness in churches and in Christians back to beliefs that are far detached from those which Jesus taught. A lot of evil things happen in the world because of evil ideas. I don't think it's a long shot to attach what Darwin said and particularly the long title of his book on the origin of species, which goes on to talk about favored races, and then draw a direct line between that and what Hitler sought to do. A bad idea gave birth to bad fruit. And you can't, you can't break the logical connections between each of those points. But when you see churches and Christians do bad things, there's always a breaking point between what they're doing and what Christ himself wanted of his people. He stands even when we fall, in other words, and we are not perfect. Let me just bring this to a close and say this. Why am I a Christian? I'm a Christian for two reasons. One is because it's true. Not because I feel it, 
necessarily all of the time in equal measure. But because when I look at the facts about Jesus, I have to conclude it is true. His word and his works, they stack up. But I'm also a Christian because of the fact that it works. I look around at your lovely faces and I see people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus for the better. It works at the level of the individual. It works in churches. It works at the bigger scale. Christ can give answers to many of the, all of the injustices and problems we see in the world around us. So I want to close with some words of John. Uh, sorry, Peter in John's Gospel. In John 6, one of the occasions when Jesus, as he was wont to do, managed to offend thousands of people by telling, him to do, telling them to do something grotesque, which was to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He was speaking a metaphorical language. They thought he was inviting them to become cannibals. They all run away, and Jesus turns to his disciples, his 12 disciples, and he says to them, do you want to go away as well? So he's really asking them, do you believe in me? Do you trust me? Is your faith still resting on me? Just as we bring this to a rousing conclusion, (laughs) Seth is screaming his head off in the foyer. He asks his disciples, do you want to go away as well? And one of them, Simon Peter, says, Lord, to whom shall we go You alone have the words of eternal life. And we've believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He's saying, in effect, it doesn't matter how many other people reject you. Lord, I've looked at everything available. I've looked at what's on offer. And I come to the conclusion again and again that there's nowhere else to go. If I walk away from you, I'm walking into nothing. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And I say it to reassure you if you're a Christian. There may be all kinds of bad teaching that circulates in the church and of course in the world at large. False prophets, Jesus calls them. If you're wrestling with doubt about your faith, consider that. Who else will you go to? You'll never go wrong when you come back to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I want to be your disciple, come what may. And if you're not a Christian, and I know that you know, whenever we gather, I would never assume that everyone is. If you're not a Christian, then I encourage you to make the exact same assessment in your mind. Where else are you going to go? Who else can you trust? Who can give you answers for the deepest issues of your heart? Who can help you deal with guilt, with shame, with wondering what's next, with wondering what's beyond death. Who else will you go to? Since he alone has the words of eternal life. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I want to worship you because far beyond the value 
of everything that I possess in this world. We have you. We have your teaching. We have your life. We have the fact that you gave yourself for us. Lord, we're distracted from the left and from the right by all kinds of people with all kinds of messages. We don't have to look far before we realize that the fruit of their lives never really adds up. But when we look at you, we see one who is totally compelling and we want to praise you. We want to love you. We want to be freshly committed to you in devotion, in desire, in love. And God, I pray that we'd be a church that would be nailed to the mast of your truth, not out of some dogmatic, angry, black and white, bigoted view of things, but because there's nothing else out there. Because you're the anchor. Because you're the mountain that can't be moved. Because you're the God who is eternal. And because, Jesus, you're true. Lord, I pray that that would sink into our hearts more deeply, resulting in more devoted, committed discipleship. It's you or nothing, Lord. We love you. We praise you. Amen. Amen.